Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with Women, Race, and Class. We have a new chapter today, we're gonna get through the whole thing, and it's not too long. Just a couple of content warnings. As usual, these are referenced in anecdotes. Uh, there's both sexual assault and murder. Both are also quite vague references. They're not detailed or described in the actual events, but they are referenced. And with that said, let's get started. Chapter 5. The Meaning of Emancipation According to Black Women Quote, Cursed be Canaan, cried the Hebrew priests. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Are not Negroes servants? Ergo, upon such spiritual myths was the anachronism of American slavery built, and this was the degradation that once made menial servants the aristocrats among colored folk. When emancipation came, the lore of house service for the Negro was gone. The path of salvation for the emancipated host of black folk no longer lay through the kitchen door, with its wide yard and pillared yards beyond. It lay, as every Negro soon knew and knows, in escape from menial serfdom. End quote. Footnote 1. After a quarter century of freedom, vast numbers of black women were still working in the fields. Those who had made it into the big house found the door toward new opportunities sealed shut, unless they preferred, for example, to wash clothes at home for a medley of white families, as opposed to performing a medley of household jobs for a single white family. Only an infinitesimal number of black women had managed to escape from the fields, from the kitchen, or from the washroom. According to the 1890 census, there were 2.7 million black girls and women over the age of 10. More than a million of them worked for wages, 38.7% in agriculture, 30.8% in household domestic service, 15.6% in laundry work, and a negligible 2.8% in manufacturing. Footnote 2. The few who found jobs in industry usually performed the dirtiest and lowest paid work and they had not really made a significant breakthrough, for their slave mothers had also worked in the southern cotton mills, in the sugar refineries, and even in the mines. For black women in 1890, freedom must have appeared to be even more remote in the future than it had been at the end of the Civil War. As during slavery, black women who worked in agriculture, as sharecroppers, tenant farmers, or farm workers, were no less oppressed than the men alongside whom they labored the day long. They were often compelled to sign contracts with landowners who wanted to reduplicate the antebellum conditions. The contract's expiration date was frequently a mere formality, since landlords could claim that workers owed them more than the equivalent of the prescribed labor period. In the aftermath of emancipation, the masses of black people, men and women alike, found themselves in an indefinite state of peonage. Sharecroppers, who ostensibly owned the products of their labor, were no better off than the outright peons. Those who rented land immediately after emancipation rarely possessed money to meet their rent payments, or to purchase other necessities before they harvested their first crop. Demanding as much as 30% in interest, landowners and merchants alike held mortgages on the crops. Quote, of course the farmers could pay no such interest, and the end of the first year found them in debt. The second year, they tried again, but there was the old debt and the new interest to pay, 
and in this way the mortgage system has gotten a hold on everything that it seems impossible to shake off. End quote. Footnote 3. Through the convict lease system, black people were forced to play the same old roles carved out for them by slavery. Men and women alike were arrested and imprisoned at the slightest pretext, in order to be leased out by the authorities as convict laborers. Whereas the slaveholders had recognized limits to the cruelty with which they exploited their valuable human property, no such cautions were necessary for the post-war planters, who rented black convicts for relatively short terms. In many cases, sick convicts are made to toil until they drop dead in their tracks. Footnote 4. Using slavery as its model, the convict lease system did not discriminate between male and female labor. Men and women were frequently housed together in the same stockade and were yoked together during the workday. In a resolution passed by the 1883 Texas State Convention of Negroes, quote, the practice of yoking or chaining male and female convicts together was strongly condemned. End quote. Footnote 5. Likewise, at the founding convention of the Afro-American League in 1890, one of the seven reasons motivating the creation of this organization was, quote, the odious and demoralizing penitentiary system of the South, its chain gangs, convict leases, and indiscriminate mixing of males and females. End quote. Footnote 6. As W.E.B. Dubois observed, the profit potential for the convict lease system persuaded many southern planters to rely exclusively on convict labor, some employing a labor force of hundreds of black prisoners. Footnote 7. As a result, both employers and state authorities acquired a compelling economic interest in increasing the prison population. Quote, Since 1876, Dubois points out, Negroes have been arrested on the slightest provocation and given long sentences or fines which they were compelled to work out. End quote. Footnote 8. This perversion of the criminal justice system was oppressive to the ex-slave population as a whole, but the women were especially susceptible to the brutal assaults of the judicial system. The sexual abuse they had routinely suffered during the era of slavery was not arrested by the advent of emancipation. As a matter of fact, it was still true that, quote, colored women were looked upon as the legitimate prey of white men, end quote, footnote 9. And if they resisted white men's sexual attacks, they were frequently thrown into prison to be further victimized by a system which was a return to another form of slavery, footnote 10. During the post-slavery period, most black women workers who did not toil in the fields were compelled to become domestic servants. Their predicament, no less than that of their sisters who were sharecroppers or convict laborers, bore the familiar stamp of slavery. Indeed, slavery itself had been euphemistically called the domestic institution, and slaves had been designated as innocuous domestic servants. In the eyes of the former slaveholders, domestic service must have been a courteous term for a contemptible occupation not a half-step away from slavery, while black women worked as cooks, nursemaids, chambermaids, and all-purpose domestics, white women in the South unanimously rejected this line of work. Outside the South, white women who worked as domestics were generally European immigrants who, like their ex-slave sisters, were compelled to take whatever employment they could find. 
The occupational equation of black women with domestic service was not, however, a simple vestige of slavery destined to appear with the passage of time. For almost a century, they would be unable to escape domestic work in any significant numbers. A Georgia domestic worker's story, recorded by a New York journalist in 1912, footnote 11, reflected black women's economic predicament of previous decades, as well as for many years to come. More than two-thirds of the black women in her town were forced to hire themselves out as cooks, nursemaids, washerwomen, chambermaids, hucksters and janitresses, and were caught up in the conditions just as bad as, if not worse than, it was during slavery. Footnote 12. For more than 30 years, this black woman had involuntarily lived in all the households where she was employed, working as many as 14 hours a day. She was generally allowed an afternoon visit with her own family only once every two weeks. She was, in her own words, the slave, body and soul, footnote 13, of her white employers. She was always called by her first name, never Mrs., and was not infrequently referred to as their n-word, in other words, their slave, footnote 14. One of the most humiliating aspects of domestic service in the South, another affirmation of its affinity with slavery, was the temporary revocation of Jim Crow laws as long as the black servant was in the presence of a white person. Quote, I have gone on the streetcars or the railroad trains with the white children, and I could sit anywhere I desired, front or back. If a white man happened to ask some other white man, what is that n-word doing in here, and was told... Oh, she's the nurse of those white children in front of her. Immediately, there was the hush of peace. Everything was all right. As long as I was in the white man's part of the streetcar or in the white man's coach as a servant, a slave. But as soon as I did not present myself as a menial by my not having white children with me, I would be forthwith assigned to the N-word seats or the colored people's coach. End quote. Footnote 15. From Reconstruction to the Present, black women household workers have considered sexual abuse perpetrated by the man of the house as one of their major occupational hazards. Time after time, they have been victims of extortion on the job, compelled to choose between sexual submission and absolute poverty for themselves and their families. The Georgia woman lost one of her living jobs because I refused to let the madam's husband kiss me. Footnote 16. Quote, Soon after I was installed as cook, he walked up to me, threw his arms around me, and was in the act of kissing me, when I demanded to know what he meant and shoved him away. I was young then and newly married, and didn't know then what has been a burden to my mind and heart ever since, that a coloured woman's virtue in this part of the country has no protection. End quote. Footnote 17. As during slavery times, the black man who protested such treatment of his sister, daughter, or wife could always expect to be punished for his efforts. Quote, when my husband went to the man who had insulted me, the man cursed him and slapped him and had him arrested. The police fined my husband $25. End quote. Footnote 18. After she testified under oath in court, quote, the old judge looked up at me and said, this court will never take the word of an N-word against the word of a white man. End quote. Footnote 19. 
1919, when the Southern leaders of the National Association of Colored Women drew up their grievances, the conditions of domestic service were first on their list. It was with good reason that they protested what they politely termed exposure to moral temptations footnote 20, on the job. Undoubtedly, the domestic worker from Georgia would have expressed unqualified agreement with the association's protests. In her words, quote, I believe nearly all white men take, and expect to take, undue liberties with their colored female servants, not only the fathers, but in many cases the sons also. Those servants who rebel against such familiarity must either leave or expect a mighty hard time if they stay. End quote. Footnote 21. Since slavery, the vulnerable condition of the household worker has continued to nourish many of the lingering myths about the immorality of black women. In this classic Catch-22 situation, household work is considered degrading because it has been disproportionately performed by black women, who in turn are viewed as inept and promiscuous. But their ostensible ineptness and promiscuity are myths which are repeatedly confirmed by the degrading work they are compelled to do. As W.E.B. Dubois said, any white man of decency would certainly cut his daughter's throat before he permitted her to accept domestic employment. Footnote 22. When black people began to migrate northward, men and women alike discovered their white employers outside the south were not fundamentally different from their former owners, in their attitudes about the occupational potentials of the newly freed slaves. They also believed, it seemed, that, quote, Negroes are servants, servants are Negroes. End quote, footnote 23. According to the 1890 census, Delaware was the only state outside the South where the majority of black people were farm workers and sharecroppers, as opposed to domestic servants. Footnote 24. In 32 out of 48 states, domestic service was the dominant occupation for men and women alike. In 7 out of 10 of these states, there were more black people working as domestics than in all the other occupations combined. Footnote 25. The census report was proof that Negroes are servants, servants are Negroes. Isabel Eaton's companion essay on domestic service published in Dubois' 1899 study, The Philadelphia Negro, reveals that 60% of all black workers in the state of Pennsylvania were engaged in some form of domestic work. Footnote 26. The predicament of women was even worse, for all but 9%. 14,297 out of 15,704 of black women workers were employed as domestics. Footnote 27. When they had traveled north to escape the old slavery, they had discovered there were simply no other occupations open to them. In researching her study, Eaton interviewed several women who had previously taught school but had been fired because of prejudice. Footnote 28. Expelled from the classroom, they were compelled to work in the washroom and the kitchen. Of the 55 employers interviewed by Eaton, only one preferred white servants over black ones. Footnote 29. In the words of one woman, quote, I think the colored people are much maligned in regard to honesty, cleanliness, and trustworthiness. My experience of them is that they are immaculate in every way, and they are perfectly honest. Indeed, I can't say enough about them. End quote. Footnote 30. Racism works in convoluted ways. 
the employers who thought they were complimenting black people by stating their preference for them over whites were arguing, in reality, that menial servants, slaves, to be frank, were what black people were destined to be. Another employer described her cook as very industrious and careful, painstaking. She is a good, faithful creature, and very grateful. Footnote 31. Of course, the good servant is always faithful, trustworthy, and grateful. U.S. literature and the popular media in this country furnish numerous stereotypes of the black woman as the faithful, enduring servant. The Dilsies, a la Faulkner, the Berenices, a member of the wedding, and the Aunt Jemimas of commercial fame have become stock characters of U.S. culture. Thus, the one woman interviewed by Eaton who did prefer white servants confessed that she actually employed black help. Quote, because they look more like servants. End quote. Footnote 32. The tautological definition of black people as servants is indeed one of the essential props of racist ideology. Racism and sexism frequently converge, and the condition of white women workers is often tied to the oppressive predicament of women of color. Thus, the wages received by white women domestics have always been fixed by the racist criteria used to calculate the wages of black women servants. Immigrant women compelled to accept household employment earned little more than their black counterparts. As far as their wage-earning potential was concerned, they were closer, by far, to their black sisters than to their white brothers who worked for a living. End quote. Footnote 33. If white women never resorted to domestic work unless they were certain of finding nothing better, black women were trapped in these occupations until the advent of World War II. Even in the 1940s, there were street corner markets in New York and other large cities, modern versions of slavery's auction block, inviting white women to take their pick from the crowds of black women seeking work. Quote, Every morning, rain or shine. Groups of women with brown paper bags or cheap suitcases stand on street corners in the Bronx and Brooklyn waiting for a chance to get some work. Once hired on the slave market, the women often find after a day's backbreaking toil that they worked longer than was arranged, got less than was promised, were forced to accept clothing instead of cash, and were exploited beyond human endurance. Only the urgent need for money makes them submit to this routine daily. End quote. Footnote 34. New York could claim about 200 of these slave markets, many of them located in the Bronx, where almost any corner above 167th Street was a gathering point for black women seeking work. Footnote 35. In a 1938 article published in The Nation, our feudal housewives, as the piece was entitled, were said to work some 72 hours a week, receiving the lowest wages of all occupations. Footnote 36. The least fulfilling of all employment, domestic work has also been the most difficult to unionize. As early as 1881, domestic workers were among the women who joined the locals of the Knights of Labor when it rescinded its ban on female membership. Footnote 37. But many decades later, union organizers seeking to unite domestic workers confronted the very same obstacles as their predecessors. Dora Jones founded and led the New York Domestic Workers Union during the 1930s. Footnote 38. By 1939, five years after the union was founded, 
only 350 out of 100,000 domestics in the state had been recruited. Given the enormous difficulties of organizing domestics, however, this was hardly a small accomplishment. White women, feminists included, have revealed a historical reluctance to acknowledge the struggles of household workers. They have rarely been involved in the Sisyphean task of ameliorating the conditions of domestic service. The convenient omission of household workers' problems from the programs of middle-class feminists past and present has often turned out to be a veiled justification, at least on the part of affluent women, of their own exploitative treatment of their maids. In 1902, the author of an article entitled A Nine-Hour Day for Domestic Servants described a conversation with a feminist friend who had asked her to sign a petition urging employers to furnish seats for women clerks. Quote, the girls, she said, have to stand on their feet ten hours a day, and it makes my heart ache to see their tired faces. Mrs. Jones, said I, how many hours a day does your maid stand upon her feet? Why, I don't know, she gasped. Five or six, I suppose. At what time does she rise? At six. And at what hour does she finish at night? Oh, about eight, I think, generally. That makes fourteen hours. She can often sit down at her work. At what work? Washing, ironing, sweeping, making beds, cooking, washing dishes. Perhaps she sits for two hours at her meals and preparing vegetables, and four days in the week she has an hour in the afternoon. According to that, your maid is on her feet at least 11 hours a day, with a score of stair climbings included. It seems to me that her case is more pitiable than that of a store clerk. My caller rose with red cheeks and flashing eyes. My maid always has Sunday after dinner, she said. Yes, but the clerk has all day Sunday. Please don't go until I have signed that petition. No one would be more thankful than I to see the clerks have a chance to sit. End quote. Footnote 39. This feminist activist was perpetrating the very oppression she protested. Yet, her contradictory behavior and her inordinate sensitivity are not without explanation. For people who work as servants are generally viewed as less than human beings. Inherent in the dynamic of the master-servant, or mistress-maid, relationship, said the philosopher Hegel, is the constant striving to annihilate the consciousness of the servant. The clerk referred to in the conversation was a wage laborer, a human being possessing at least a modicum of independence from her employer and her work. The servant, on the other hand, labored solely for the purpose of satisfying her mistress' needs. Probably viewing her servant as a mere extension of herself, the feminist could hardly be conscious of her own active role as an oppressor. As Angelina Grimke had declared in her Appeal to the Christian Women of the South, white women who did not challenge the institution of slavery bore a heavy responsibility for its inhumanity. In the same vein, the Domestic Workers' Union exposed the role of middle-class housewives in the oppression of black domestic workers. Quote, the housewife stands condemned as the worst employer in the country. The housewives of the United States make their million and a half employees work an average of 72 hours a week and pay them whatever they can squeeze out of their budget after the grocer, the butcher, etc. have been paid. End quote. Footnote 40. Black women's desperate economic situation, they perform the worst of all jobs and are ignored to boot, did not show signs of change until the outbreak of World War II. On the eve of the war, according to the 1940 census, 59.5% of employed black women were domestic workers, and another 10.4% were 
worked in non-domestic service occupations. Footnote 41. Since approximately 16% still worked in the fields, scarcely 1 out of 10 black women workers had really begun to escape the old grip of slavery. Even those who managed to enter industry and professional work had little to boast about, for they were consigned, as a rule, to the worst paid jobs in those occupations. When the United States stepped into World War II and female labor kept the war economy rolling, more than 400,000 black women said goodbye to their domestic jobs. At the war's peak, they had more than doubled their numbers in industry. But even so, and this qualification is inevitable, as late as 1960, at least one-third of black women workers remained chained to the same old household jobs, and an additional one-fifth were non-domestic service workers. Footnote 42. In a fiercely critical essay entitled The Servant in the House, W.E.B. Dubois argued that as long as domestic service was the rule for black people, emancipation would always remain a conceptual abstraction. The Negro, Dubois insisted, will not approach freedom until this hateful badge of slavery and medievalism has been reduced to less than 10%. Footnote 43. The changes prompted by the Second World War provided only a hint of progress. After eight long decades of emancipation, the signs of freedom were shadows so vague and so distant that one strained and squinted to get a glimpse of them. And that concludes our reading for this week. Uh, this chapter has been very useful, especially in conjunction with the previous one, to detail why black people's struggle is not completed. It's not completed by the abolition of slavery, which is pretty obvious, especially if you look at the world today, but to go into the exact specifics of why, and highlighting how it is a class issue, because well, it is... I mean, in addition to being an issue of race, it is also an issue of class, because if these black people were not stuck in working-class wage-slave jobs, they would have power to avoid the situation, to leverage whether it's other sources of income or just having stable housing, for instance. They would not be stuck renting. If they had some means to make their own income without being employed by somebody else, they would obviously see the benefits of their own labor and then have that money to capitalize on rather than being squeezed for every penny, underpaid, overworked, etc. And that's without even talking about being disrespected, degraded, being looked at as a second-class citizen. This also highlights the ways in which abolition is an important step but in some ways is sort of a nominal progress that's very meaningful in theory, but it sometimes seemed like it mattered a lot to the white people who are employing these black servants, for instance, but aren't interested in material conditions of their lives. When you have white people employing servants seven days a week for 11 hours a day, not even thinking about it, not considering the fact that they're doing this, and then just kind of going, but it's fine because they're not a slave, even though the conditions are not really any better and in some ways worse. It's, it's interesting the point at which they... It's interesting the point at which this chapter points out that people had investment in their slaves in a way that they specifically would not in a wage slave, 
which is uh, very distressing to think about the ways in which this worsened certain aspects. And the problem is that the le- there are levels of power that can still be used against oppressed people, and it's not even that, in some cases, it's people who used to own slaves but still want slave labor using the police, the prison system, to effectively still have slave labor. But it's just as much like white families in the North who feel like they're good people but do still want to have very cheap labor that they're going to disrespect and not see as real people. That conversation with the woman who had a petition for improving clerks' uh, working conditions but did not give a single thought about her own servant and was utterly offended when this kind of hypocrisy was being pointed out feels like the perfect picture of this problem. But I think that's all I have to say about this chapter. If you have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or you can get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find this and lots of other leftist podcasts at abnormalmapping.com. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.